Well, friends, in one of the most tragic events in the bloody and terrible American Civil War, one of the South's most brilliant military strategists, General Thomas, known as Stonewall Jackson, was shot by mistake by his own troops. It was dusk, and he was returning to his own lines with his staff. And the Union Army, the Union soldiers, were only 100 yards away, and the Confederate troops, his own troops, were rather skittish. And thinking that Jackson and his staff were Union cavalry, they opened fire, and Jackson was shot by his own men. When the wounded general was finally taken to a place where he could receive the medical treatment that he needed, it was discovered that he was shot two places in his left arm. And the surgeons quickly came to the conclusion that lest gangrene set in, which would threaten his life, his arm needed to be amputated, and that is what was done. When asked for permission to do that operation, Jackson replied, as would any rational human being, certainly, McGuire, the name of the surgeon, do for me what you think best. And countless other people have experienced the same thing for the same reasons. They have had limbs amputated in order to save their lives. Sever the limb to save the life. If you save the limb, you will forfeit the life. Surely we would agree that it's better to lose a limb than to lose your life. Several years ago, I even read of a man who had his leg trapped under a fallen tree, and he could not extricate himself. And he actually performed the grisly procedure upon himself and amputated his own leg. But he lived to tell about it. Now, if any of you are inclined to be offended by these illustrations, and they are difficult to listen to, I want to call your attention to the text of Scripture before us this morning in our consecutive study of Mark's Gospel, because in it, the Lord Jesus Christ himself is going to use the blunt language of amputation to describe what we need to do spiritually in order to save our spiritual and eternal lives. So please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, and our text this morning will be verses 43 to 48, of Mark 9. Now, some of you are going to see there are only two more verses left in the chapter, Pastor, and they seem to relate when you understand why I'm leaving those two verses to next week. It's all about salt, and it's a wonderful concept, but it's rather deep, and I'm going to save that for a separate sermon, lest you say, why did you stop short of the rest of the chapter? But 9 of Mark chapter, uh, 9th chapter of Mark, verse 43 if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. And then some texts read, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Not all. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. And some texts read, some manuscripts read, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. And all the manuscripts have this, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And we're going to stop there. Now, remember the context of a couple of weeks ago. Jesus and his disciples are walking along and they're 
boasting to each other which one of them is the greatest. And so Jesus sits them down and he explains to them that it is not superiority of rank, privilege, or power that makes one great in his kingdom, but in his kingdom, contrary to the world, the great ones are the servants. And then he takes a child in his arms as an illustration. And he basically says, whoever receives such a child as this in my name receives me and in turn receives the one who sent me, God the Father. And he seems to be saying that the real measure of servanthood is, are you willing to serve those who can't serve you back? Children were dependent, needy, they, they weren't very important. If you're willing to serve a child, that means your heart is in the right place. You're not doing it with strings attached. But when Jesus says, receive a child in my name, the phrase in my name seems to jog the memory of the apostle John. And he remembers a case, came upon a man who were casting out demons in Jesus' name. And they tried to hinder him. And so John brings that up to Jesus for his review. And remember how Jesus responds. He doesn't correct the man who was casting out demons, he rather corrects his disciples for what I called a narrow exclusivism. And he said, do not hinder him. And then Jesus gives four reasons why they should not have prevented this man, which we, we studied last week. But the fourth of those reasons is found in Mark 9, 42. Why should you not have hindered this man who was casting out demons in my name? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me who believed to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Here is the final reason you should not have hindered this man. If you cause someone to stumble, that is, if you cause them to lose their faith or to distrust God or Jesus, it's better for you that a heavy millstone be hung around your neck and you be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's something, men, you never want to do. And perhaps by hindering this man, you were at risk of, of being a stumbling block to his faith in me. And so Jesus gives that as a warning. But it is a small jump from verse 42, where Jesus talks about um, causing one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. It's a small jump from that to verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, if your foot causes you to stumble, you see the same motif is carried over. And so I have entitled the section from 943 to 948, dealing violently with the occasions to sin. Because what Jesus is saying, not only is it wrong to cause somebody else to stumble in their faith, but it is wrong to lead yourself into sin. You mustn't be a stumbling block to other people, nor must you be a stumbling block to yourself. And so we're going to see three things this morning. The occasions to sin that must be dealt with, the violence with which we must deal with the occasions to sin, and then the motivations to deal violently with the occasions to sin. So first, the occasions to sin which must be dealt with. So Jesus speaks here of your hand causing you to stumble, your foot causing you to stumble, and your eye causing you to stumble. What does it mean to stumble? Well, it's the same word we saw last week from verse 42. It's the Greek verb skandalizo, from which we get scandal. And the noun is skandalon. And, um, and ESV would say, uh, for cause to stumble, cause you to sin. King James would have offend. And the, scandal, the scandalon was a trap stick. Remember, it was a trap by which someone would trap an animal. 
And so when you're causing someone to stumble, you're causing, you're ensnaring them. You're, you're causing them to, to lose faith and confidence, in this case, in God and in, in Jesus. The word is used in the parable of the sower, where there are certain ones who receive the word with joy, but then it says tribulation and persecution arise because of the word, and they fall away. They stumble. Well, I wasn't counting on this. I thought I would have an easy, easy way here. Now I'm following Jesus, and I'm getting all this persecution, and they stumble in unbelief toward Jesus. It's the word used in Mark 6 when Jesus is in his native um, town of Nazareth, and it says the people stumbled over him. They took offense at him because they said, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary? In other words, he can't be the great Messiah because we know who he is. He's too familiar. And they stumbled in their faith over Jesus in that way. And here it appears to mean to entice to sin. If your hand or foot entices you to sin, cut it off. If your eye entices you to sin, pluck it out. In this sense, it's used in 1 Corinthians 8, Romans 14, the context of Christian liberty of conscience. Remember, there's this meat that had been offered to idols. Some were able to eat it freely because they realized an idol doesn't exist. This is good prime beef. I can, I can buy it and eat it without sin. Others so associated that, that meat previously offered to an idol to their former idolatry, they couldn't do it with a good conscience. And Paul says, if you've got a weaker brother who can't do it with a good conscience, even though you can, refrain from eating that meat, lest you tempt him to do what his conscience uh, would not permit, and he stumbles. So don't stumble him in his faith by misusing your Christian liberty. That's the way it's used here. Now, in what sense is Jesus using hand, foot, and eye as causing one to sin? He's not teaching us that these physical appendages themselves are the source of our sinning. We know from numerous other places that my hand, my foot, my eye is not the source of my sinning. What is the source of our sinning, according to Jesus? It is the human heart, right? Mark 7, 23, for from within, out of the heart of man, proceeds the evil thoughts, the thefts, the murders, the adulteries. The appendage is not the source of sin. My heart, my inner person, is the source of sin. And why does Jesus talk about the hand and the foot causing you to stumble? Well, he's using, the commentators say, a Hebraism. The Jews often spoke of a specific member of the body as responsible for sin rather than speaking of sin in the abstract. abstract. And so Jesus is using a, a Hebraism here, common in his day, to depict sin. And what is he referring to here uh, as the hand, the foot, and the eye, and other members as, um, as causing sin? Well, he's saying that these are not the source of sin, but these are the instruments of sin. These are the channels through which we sin, or maybe in the case of the eye, the channel through which temptation to sin comes. So it's not the source of sin. These are the instruments of sin and the means of the occasion of sin, the sin that always has its root in the human heart. And so our hand stands for those sins that we commit with our hands, those sins of action. What do people do with their hands sinfully? They steal with their hands. They hurt people and they shed innocent blood with their hands. And they may even gesture offensively with their hands. And so people sin with their hands being the instrument. Our foot 
represents those places we go with our feet that might entice us to sin, or those places that are be, might be sinful in and of themselves. An example would be Proverbs 7.11, which talks about the adulterous woman and describes her this way, her feet do not remain at home. And you get the point in the context. She's not a homebody. She's not being faithful to her husband and children as a, as a worker at home, but she's out there with seductive intentions to try to seduce the young man. And that's, of course, what the context is about. Her feet do not remain at home. They're out there where they shouldn't be. In a positive sense, we read in Romans 10, 15, quoting Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Why are the feet beautiful? Because the feet are taking that person uh, to people to share the good news with them. He, he's not talking about well-manicured toenails when he talks about beautiful feet. He's saying these feet take you to places which, in which you do good. Our eye becomes the occasion of sin when it lets through its gate certain images which provoke the heart to lust and to greed and to covetousness and to envy. And Jesus could have added other members. He could have said, if your tongue causes you to stumble by your words, then cut it out. Or if your ear causes you to stumble by what you listen to, plug it up or, or cut it off. What is in view then what must be dealt with is every occasion to temptation, every occasion to sin that is presented to us, whether it comes from the world outside of us or whether it arises from our heart within. And by referring to hand, foot, and eye, he's talking about things that are precious to us, isn't he? Who wants to lose a foot? Who wants to lose a hand, especially if it's your dominant hand? Who wants to lose an eye? I know Ray Comfort in his evangelism says, you know, I, I have a million dollars here that I'm willing to give you if you're willing to sacrifice one of your eyes. He gets no takers. I don't want to lose my eye even for a million dollars because these are precious appendages, precious faculties to us. We want to preserve them. We want to protect them. But these are the very things Jesus says need to be dealt with. How? Well, let's go on to consider the violence with which we must deal with the occasions of sin. Now, as a whole, Christians are not violent people, are we? We are followers of the meek Lamb of God, Jesus. We are not known for violence in our dispositions, in our temperaments. As followers of Jesus, we are kind and gentle. We ought to be. In our interpersonal relationships, we shouldn't be strident and quarrelsome. We should be peaceable people, peacemakers, conciliatory people. In society, we're not called by Jesus to be rabble-rousers, to, to be militant rebels and, and insubordinate people. Generally, we are called to be law-abiding, peace-loving, subordinate, submissive citizens in society. Are we not, generally, as a rule? When you think of a sheep, the first word that comes to you is not violent. And we are sheep. But when it comes to dealing with sin and the occasions of temptation to sin, nothing will adequately describe what our Lord Jesus calls us to do short of this word, violence. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. 
It's violent language, isn't it? But now let's dispel quickly what Jesus does not mean by this. He doesn't mean for us to take him literally. Now, it should be noted that there have been people in the history of the church who have taken Jesus literally. One particular second century professing Christian by the name of Origen, you may have heard his name, he was an ascetic, and he practiced a very rigid asceticism. He denied his body covering, he denied his belly food, he made himself a eunuch, thinking by doing this he was on the path to holiness, and and he was doing God a service and putting sin to death. Clearly, and there have been many others, many monks in the Middle Ages who have mutilated themselves, these ascetics who think that that's the way to become holy. Let me just note that the Apostle Paul puts the kibosh on that, and he explains the wrongheadedness of that in words written to the Colossian church where there was a threat of some form of asceticism. Listen to Colossians 2, 20 to 23. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you are living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. You see what he's saying? You can beat your body black and blue. You can deprive it of food. You can deprive it of sleep. And that's not going to kill sin because sin doesn't have its source in the body, but in the heart. And just consider that you can pluck out your eye and it's not going to take the envy or the lust out of your heart, is it? You can cut off your hand, and maybe you won't be able to grab something with your opposable thumb, but that's not going to take the covetousness out of your heart. And so to deal with your body physically is superficial, and that will not deal with the the root of the problem. And so Jesus is not calling us in these words to self-mutilation. That will not adequately deal with the lust of our heart. One author put it this way, He said, Jesus was not advocating a literal, physical self-maiming, but a ruthless, moral self-denial. Not mutilation, but mortification. In order to appreciate these stern words that Jesus uses in the way we must deal with the occasions to sin, we need to be reminded of, of the nature of sin, how serious it is and how dangerous it is. Let me just remind you with some descriptions of sin. Sin is malicious, it's malicious, and it's stealthy. It desires to do us harm. In Genesis 4, God comes to Cain after he had killed his brother Abel, and he says, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, and you must master it. He describes sin as a stealthy predator that is ready to pounce on you and to do you harm. As some of you know, my wife and I got into watching this series called Alone, where people are, are with uh, survival skills are sent to these foreboding places, and they have to live there, and they need to build shelters and protect themselves from the elements, and they need to get their own food, and they need to protect themselves from predators. And in some places where they're sent, there are bears, there are wolverine, and there are mountain lions. And they paint the picture that the mountain lions are the most threatening 
because they are stealthy and they will come up behind you and pounce on you. A, a lumbering bear, he's a threat and he's a danger, but at least you're going to hear him. But, but the lion's going to come up behind you. Some people, even in the show, wear hats that have eyes on the back so the lion will see it and think he's being watched. We were just over at Springton Garden, Springton Farms yesterday with my children celebrating my birthday, and we were watching a cat to stealthily move, and we were waiting for it to pounce on, on something. It never did, but we were just watching the stealth of the cat silently waiting to pounce on its prey. Well, the sin is like that. Sin is crouching at the door. Sin wants to pounce on you. It is malicious. Sin is powerful. Paul says in Romans 19 and 7, 19 and 20, even speaking as a Christian, the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the thing, the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Can't you identify with that as a Christian? And I believe there's reason to believe he's speaking as a Christian here. The good I want to do, I don't do. The evil that I don't want to do, I know it's wrong, but I find myself doing. Why? Because indwelling sin, even in a believer, is, is powerful. It's pugnacious. The same context, Romans 7, 23, Paul says, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. That's militant language. Sin is warring against us from within. Sin is pervasive. Jesus said, if you just look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. It's not just in our actions. It's not just in our words, but it's in our very thoughts. It's in our very imaginations. Sin is pervasive throughout our whole being, and sin is perverting. Isn't that the nature of sin? It takes the good gifts of God and perverts them. So we've been given hands with which to work and earn and give. And what do we use those hands to do? To steal and to take and get for ourselves. We have been given feet to take us to various places, like the feet of those who preach good news, to do our souls good, such as worshiping in church, or to bring the good news to others. And where do people, how do people use their feet to go to places they ought not to go? We've been given eyes, eyes to look at God's creation and, and worship him and, and marvel at his wisdom, his infinite wisdom in the creation. And we often set our eyes on objects that tempt us to sin. And so sin is perverting. It takes the good gifts of God and, and causes us to, to misuse them. And sin finally is potentially lethal. Romans 8.13 says, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That indicates a person who lives a life of sin, unchecked, unrepented of, faces spiritual death now and eternal death, as we'll see in the age to come. It is potentially lethal. The struggle with sin is a life and death, spiritual life and death struggle. So because of the horrible nature of sin and its terrible danger. The occasions to sin must be dealt with radically and ruthlessly. The language of cutting off a hand or foot, plucking out an eye, is saying that we need to do whatever it takes and we need to take whatever measures needed to keep ourselves from sin. Or if you have fallen into sin, to extricate yourself from it. We are not to coddle sin. We're not to pamper sin. 
We are to deal with it as the surgeon deals with the gangrenous um, hand or foot or leg. We need to cut it off. Nothing short of that will do. And let's keep this, let's not just keep this in the abstract, but let's go down into the concrete with this. We all have struggle with sin. Some sins are called easily besetting sins. You know what it is in your case. It's the sin that you especially struggle with, the sin that you most often fall prey to and have to fight against. Everybody has an easily besetting sin. And these sins rob us of joy, rob us of a good conscience, rob us of usefulness in the kingdom of God, and can even keep us out of heaven. Now, it's interesting here that Jesus is talking to disciples, and yet, as we'll see in a few minutes, he is threatening them with the threat of hell. And you might respond and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not a legitimate threat for a Christian. Christians have eternal security, right? Yes. But how do we describe that doctrine? Some people say, once saved, always saved. That doesn't wear well in this community. And I'll tell you why, because I've interacted with a lot of people, because they think they've come from circles where people say, oh, you prayed a prayer, you made a decision for Jesus, and you think you're, you're good for eternity, and yet you're living like the devil. So I don't use the language, once saved, always. Is that technically true? If you've been truly saved, you will always be saved? Absolutely. But I don't use that language because a better description of that doctrine is, you know it, the perseverance of the saints, right? If you're truly the Lord's, you will persevere in faith in Jesus Christ, in obedience to God, in pursuing holiness, which involves putting sin to death. You will persevere. Now, I like to turn around and say, will you persevere? Absolutely. Because God will preserve you. But must you persevere? Yes. Both are equally true. And so our doctrine of the security of the believer is the perseverance of the saints. If you're a true saint, you will continue in the pursuit of holiness, which means you will continue in the work of putting sin to death. Now, before I talk about some particulars, get it out of the abstract and you know, make it a little more concrete, let me remind you of what it means to spiritually cut off hands and feet and pluck out eyes. I think two things. According to Romans 13, 14, the Apostle Paul says, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill or carry out its lusts. That tells us that we must do nothing to feed sin in ourselves. And then Romans 8, 13 again says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's the corollary. We must do everything to kill sin. Do nothing to feed sin. Do everything to kill sin. That's what Jesus, I think, is saying when he says you need to cut off your hand and foot and pluck out your eyes. So let's talk about a few particulars. You may struggle with the sin of covetousness, a love of things. You know, things in themselves are, are neutral. Commodities are neutral, aren't they? Home furnishings are neutral. Fashions are neutral. Clothes are neutral. These things are not sinful in themselves. But if you love them too much, 
if you say like Achan, or if you're like Achan, who saw, he coveted, and he took to great harm to the people of Israel, then that covetousness becomes an idol and, and that becomes sin, right? If you must have it, you need it and you must have it, then you need to pluck out that eye of covetousness. You need to do whatever it takes to kill that sin of covetousness. It may mean, in some cases, cutting up your credit cards. Other people have the freedom to have multiple credit cards and they pay them off every month, but I don't have that control. I spend needlessly and carelessly and I need to pluck out my eye, which means cutting up my credit cards. It may be. You may wrestle with the sin of pride. I don't know that there's any of us that don't, right? That's a ubiquitous sin. We all have pride. And we need to do whatever it takes to kill that pride in our lives. Peter says, God says through Peter, God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. I think I've told you before, I, I have prayed, Lord, so desperately do I need to be humble to receive your grace that I ask you first for the grace to humble myself. But if I fail to do a sufficient job, then humble me and even humiliate me. So desperately do we need that humility that brings God's grace. And so as we wrestle with pride, we need to do everything we can to put it to death. Parents, you have children, and your children are gifted. You're going to find out that they're gifted. They're gifted maybe intellectually, or maybe athletically, or maybe mechanically, or maybe musically or artistically. And that will be the area where they will be tempted to be puffed up and be proud. And as parents, you need to work from an early age to, to kill that. On the one hand, affirm their gift and urge and encourage that gift, but kill any pride that might arise from that gift. Paul says to the Corinthians, what do you have that you haven't received? If you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So work hard, parents, to detect pride in that area of your child's giftedness and skill. Encourage the gift by all means, but discourage the pride that will go with it. I know of a pastor who has such a personality that he knows he could easily be a celebrity pastor. In fact, he probably is, but he takes pains to not make himself a celebrity, pa celebrity pastor by limiting the time he himself is in the pulpit. He allows other men to share the pulpit with him because he wants to fight against the pride of the people in him and his own pride in being a celebrity pastor. That's true humility, and that's an effort to kill the sin of pride in his life. Men, you battle with sexual lust. What are the eyes that you need to pluck out in order to wither that sin within you? Is it cable TV? Is it the internet on your phone or on your computer? You need to do whatever it takes whether it's some sort of accountability program, in some cases you have to just kill it and get rid of it. You can say others have liberty to have it. I do not because I can't control it. It leads me into sin. I can't control it. I've got to pluck out that eye. That applies to me. And there may be places where you can't go. You have to cut off your feet because if you go to the beach during certain times of the year, it will tempt you to, to sin in that area and you have to cut off your feet and say, I'm not going to the beach. Others may have the freedom to do that. I do not. I do not. You may be beset with a tendency to self-centeredness. Again, which of us is not guilty of that? But maybe you're one who tends to talk too much and always about yourself, and conversations always come to, around to you. Maybe 
the step you need to take is to say, you know what, I'm going to ruthlessly practice just asking questions of people to get to know about them. How are you doing? What's happening in your life? How was your week? And when they ask me a question, maybe I'm just going to answer very briefly and get back to them because I need to kill that sin of self-centeredness in me, always talking about myself and making myself the center of, the, of attention. In another case, food may be a stumbling block, right? There's a sin of gluttony, and you may have to ban certain foods or drinks from your house to keep from overindulging. For others, certain reading materials, certain movies, certain videos need to be banned in your case because they lead you into paths of sin. You know how they say that for women, romance novels are female pornography. Not visual, but, and I don't know that anybody here would have your girls read romance novels, but they've been a real snare. They present this idealized, romanticized, fantastical view of marriage, which doesn't square with reality and leads to a lot of disappointment in life, right? That's female pornography. When you read these romance novels that are not really holy and good and healthy, um, some of you wives have skills and training. I know it applies to my own wife. You have skills in areas, and you have, you have training in areas, but it's not the time for those gifts to be given full expression because right now you're called to be a mother at home. And you need to be willing to say, I've got these gifts, I've got these skills. They cannot be given full expression. My wife could not, would never have worked 50 hours for Swan as she's doing now when we had children in the home. When, when we had children in the home, she devoted to them. Only as the, the nest gets empty are you free then to use some of those things. We have a friend who's a very gifted artist. You would know her. And she didn't really indulge her, uh, her, her gift fully until her nest was fairly empty. Then she's gotten back to beautifully painting. Um, but there are certain things you have to stifle because it's not the time for me to do that. Even with relationships, we need to ask, what relationships do I have that are a snare to me? Bad company corrupts good morals, and some have to be cut off. I like this person, but this person leads me into sin, leads me to, to think things and do things that I should not do, and I've got to cut off that relationship or limit that relationship. And we could obviously go on and on, but do you get the Lord's point? Anything and everything that stands between you and love for your Savior and devotion to Jesus, or between your soul, between you and your soul's final salvation, it needs to be radically, ruthlessly, and violently dealt with. It may be something sinful in itself, or it may be something that's not sinful, but something that you just can't control. Imagine yourself in a boat on a stormy sea with rocky shoals, and you need to make it into the harbor. We see this in Paul's Journey in Acts 27, throwing everything overboard that needs to be thrown overboard in order to make it safely into the harbor. And that's what we need to do with our sin. Well, this is the command of our Lord Jesus. May he give us all more grace to be more ruthless with the occasions to sin. May he even bring to mind this imagery, this, this strong imagery of amputation when we are tempted in areas of sin. But... Not only does the Lord give the command, but as often, he gives us incentive or motivation to the command. 
And so our final point is the motivation to deal violently with the occasions to sin. And the motivation is twofold. There's the threat of the agonies of hell and the promise of the joys of eternal life. The threat of the agonies of hell. Three times Jesus warns of the consequences of failing to deal violently and radically with, this, with sin and its occasions. In 43, 45, and 47, he says, better to go into life with one hand, one foot, one eye, than to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. And the reference to hell here is the word Gehenna, as many of you know. South of Jerusalem, there was a place called the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. It's called that in Joshua. And Ge is the word for valley, Ben is son, the valley of the son of Hinnom. In that valley was practiced the most abominable practices that heathen worship ever conceived. It was there in that valley that the Ammonites worshiped their god Molech by offering their own children in sacrifice to this god. The image of his pagan of this pagan deity, I remember, is of cupped hands into which they would the stone image into which they would place that child and he would be burned to death. Behind it was demons. Psalm 106, 37 and 38 says they even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood. They thought they were sacrificed to a god. Behind that god was a demon, were demons. During the kingships of two kings, Ahaz and Manasseh in Judah, they were given over. Those kings were given over to this horrid practice. Second uh, Chronicles 28.3 says of Ahaz, he burned his sons in fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. Uh, God's word through Jeremiah in chapter 7 says, they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. And not only did it not come into God's mind, but he actually pronounced the death penalty upon it in Leviticus 20, verse 2. Any man who gives any of his offspring to Molech shall surely be put to death. Josiah, in the time of his reform, good King Josiah defiled Topheth, which was in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire to Molech. Jeremiah predicts that one day it would be a place of burial like no other place. The dead bodies of his people will be food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth. And to be sure, that's what it became. It became a place of perpetual burning fire where the Jews would throw refuse and they throw the dead bodies of animals and the dead bodies of criminals who had been executed. That becomes the image for eternal hell used by the Jews and used by Jesus. And note the description in verse 48. Although it's not in some of the manuscripts, but it's clearly the words of Jesus. It's at least in verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That language is borrowed from Isaiah 66. Now, Isaiah is the gospel of the Old Testament. And from Isaiah 40 on, he's focusing on future new covenant realities. And near the end of his book, he says this in Isaiah 66, 22 and 23. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, which I will and which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord. So your offspring and your name will endure and it will come. It will be from new moon to new 
moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow before me, says the Lord. Now, he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. That's what Peter talks about. That's the ultimate landing place for us, not heaven, but the new heavens and new earth. Then in the next verse, he says, then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be in abhorrence to all mankind. If the previous verses talk about ultimate eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth, this is talking about ultimate eternal punishment. And Jesus describes it this way, their worm does not die. And the word, the term for worm is the, ma- is the maggot that feeds on, on corpses. And the picture is when the maggot is done eating everything it is there to eat, it dies. But in this case, the maggot does not die because it never ceases to feed upon what it's feeding on. It is a clear picture of the eternality of hell. The maggot, the worm, never dies because it never ceases to feed on something. And that doesn't mean there are literal worms in hell, but clearly is a picture of the reality of the eternality of hell. Likewise, he says, the fire is not extinguished. And the perpetual burning dump outside Jerusalem was a picture of that. The fire never goes out. Again, that doesn't mean necessarily that there's literal fire in hell, but it pictures, again, the eternality, the never-endingness of punishment in hell. And who is described as entering into that state? Those who come to the judgment bar of God intact. They've got two hands, two feet, two eyes, because they never took sin seriously enough to deal with their sin. They never dealt radically and violently with sin so as to cut off spiritually an offending member. Those are the ones who go into hell. It's interesting in verse 43, it says they go into hell, highlighting the fact that they go by their own choice and their own responsibility. But then it says in verses 45 and 47, they are cast into hell indicating the other side of the truth, that God's sovereign judgment sends them to hell. Here are people who are too indifferent to sin, too soft on sin, too lighthearted about sin, to deal soberly and seriously with it, and to take seriously what God says about their human nature. And it says they are the ones who go to hell. Now, in saying that, in saying that you've got to kill sin to get into heaven, am I adding works to salvation? I can hear some people saying, oh, but you're adding a work to to salvation by grace. I'm not doing that at all. I'm not saying that you need to do this work of putting sin to death to earn eternal life. Because the desire to put sin to death, the desire to hate sin and turn from it and perpetually repent goes with the territory of becoming a new creation in Christ. When Jesus describes his people in the Beatitudes, blessed are, blessed are, happy are, happy are, one of the descriptions is blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He's not talking about mourning over the death of a loved one. He's talking about mourning over sin. You see, it is characteristic of the true people of God that they mourn over their sin. That's the reason they came to Jesus in the first place. Why in the world would you come to Jesus for mercy unless you saw yourself as a lost, hell-deserving sinner? And so it's not an added work. It goes with the territory of what it means to be a Christian. 
Repentance is part of what it means to become a Christian. And repentance is turning from sin. And you turn from that which you, you, you come to abominate and hate. It's been called the vomit of the soul. I want to get rid of this sin. I'm tired of being uh, separated from God. I'm tired of living this life of enslavement to my, my sinful passions. I want to turn from it. I need to be forgiven of it, and I need to be cleansed from it. Jesus, be merciful to me. And so it's, it's simply what it means to be a Christian. But if you're one here who fits that description, you're going to keep your two hands, your two feet, your two eyes, because sin is just not a big deal. Yeah, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. I have a few mistakes. I mess up once in a while. But sin is nothing so serious that it's going to alarm me. I'm not going to take it so seriously that I fear going into hell for my sin. My friend, you are the one that Jesus is describing here as one who is headed for that very place. And you desperately need to come to terms with how God sees you. So easy to compare ourselves to others. Well, I'm not criminal. I'm, I don't do what that person does. I've been faithful in this area and that area. I'm not, I'm not one of these common criminal types. I'm pretty good on a scale of, of human comparison. God does not grade on a curve. His standard is absolute. And we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you need to see yourself as a hell-deserving sinner. Your offense has been against a perfectly holy person. That's what makes it so grievous. That's what makes the desert so severe, eternal hell. And I would plead with you to come to terms with what God in the Bible says is true of you and is true of all of us, that as a result, you would mourn over your sin and see, I need mercy. I need grace. Jesus, be merciful to me. And he is such a merciful Savior, so willing to save, open arms, not only able, but willing. Come to me. Come to me if you're weary and heavy laden. And that's weighed down with your sins. I'll give you rest. I'll give rest to your soul, and he'll give eternal life. The other promise, the other incentive to put sin to death is not only to avoid the pains of hell, but we have the promise of eternal life. Yeah, if you make it to heaven, you'll be maimed. You'll go through with one foot instead of two and one hand instead of two and one eye. What does that mean? Well, you're going to deny yourself some of the temporal earthly pleasures. You're not able to indulge in every earthly pleasure like some do. And so in that sense, you will be maimed, you will be deprived. But what do you get in return? Verse 43 and 45 talk about entering into life. And we're talking about eternal life, a blessed existence far beyond our imagination. All the suffering of this present time is not worthy, Paul says, to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. It is life in the consummate kingdom of God. It is eternal life. It is life in heaven and eventually on a new heavens and new earth. And so I read to you Revelation 21.4, the glorious life that awaits every true child of God who has seen himself as a hell-deserving sinner, repented, come to Jesus for forgiveness, and he, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Friends, if only we could be more heavenly-minded and esteem the riches of heaven as infinitely greater than the best of the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
Brothers and sisters, let these words of Jesus in this text sink deeply into your hearts. Meditate on them, that your soul is of, of infinite value. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Let us value our souls enough that we are willing to slay on the altar of sacrifice anything and everything, every lust, every passion, everything that would hinder our soul's safe and happy entrance into the eternal kingdom of God. Father, forgive us for our earthly mindedness. Forgive us, Lord, for flirting with sin and seeing it a light matter. Oh, God, open our eyes to the joys of fellowship with you, which begins now and will terminate in eternal life on the new heavens and new earth. And make it all worth it to us, Lord, to put to death every sensual, sinful delight and pleasure, which your word tells us and our experience confirms these are fleeting pleasures of sin. They will not last. They will lead to hurt. They will lead to death. Lord, give us perspective. Work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.